Well, welcome to uh, this, you know, terribly ugly facility that we're in. Um, if you're listening online, we are in Stouffer Chapel, uh, high above the Pacific Ocean, and we wish you were here. Thank you for coming. My name is Pat Bills. I uh, have been preaching in Dallas full-time. I'm getting ready to start year 13 in, in August, and we, uh, we have experienced this little thing called the pandemic, right? I'm sure you have similar stories, but COVID finally made sense to me when all of my kids and family, we all got COVID at the same time, and it happened in successive weeks. So we were quarantined for like 28 days at our house. And so we did something that a lot of families decided to do. We watched the Marvel movies in order, like two a day. It was an amazing experience. But part of COVID made sense to me at the end of Infinity Wars. And if you haven't seen the Marvel movies, um, there's this character named Thanos that collects all the Infinity Stones, which I'm sure if you haven't seen it, makes no sense at all. But they're the most powerful stones in the Marvel Universe. And Thanos has this moment where he snaps his fingers and half the population in the world just disappears. And when I was watching that movie for the second or third time with my kids, it occurred to me that's what COVID feels like. Is that somebody came along and snapped their fingers and everything changed. <laughs> everything that we, we knew we were comfortable with, the way we thought the world worked, just went a different direction. And I've had a lot of people tell me how sorry they are for my profession uh, being in, in preaching because they, they would say something like the two professions that COVID has impacted the most have been the medical profession and I think preachers. And I really appreciated that because there was this deep, you know, empathy that people shared with what I was doing. And what I wanted to do is look at them and say, you know, you, you really have, have no idea what this is like. This is really, really hard. And so the more I began thinking about preaching and the work of preaching, and when, uh, when I was asked to do this workshop, it took me a little off guard because there are perhaps people more qualified than I am. So I, I tried to see myself as someone that can gather some wood together, set it on fire, and watch it burn. So I've asked some of my favorite preaching friends to come alongside and um, share with us today. Um, some of this deeply held wisdom about preaching in a pandemic. Uh, in a few moments, we're going to begin with uh, one of my preaching mentors and heroes, uh, Randy Harris, who's really going to talk to us about soul care in the midst of a pandemic. So even if you don't preach full-time, I hope that you'll overhear something that you can relay back to your own preacher at home. Um, Randy does uh, some tremendous work in the contemplative ministry initiative that I'm sure if you don't mind telling us a little bit more about CMI, uh, perhaps uh, your preacher might be uh, interested in experiencing that, but tending to your soul in the midst of this pandemic really matters. Uh, two of my other preaching mentors and heroes, uh, Sarah Barton and Amy Bostenegger, are going to share some lessons that they learned about preaching during the pandemic. And then uh, Sarah, Amy, and I are going to follow that just with a conversation about some things that they raised 
um, as well as some additional questions that I might have. And if we have time, maybe we can take some feedback from, from you all in the audience. But what I would love for you to walk away with here this afternoon is hope. Hope that God does in fact have a word for us, especially those of us who preach. Um, I read a book the other day on the beach. We don't have a lot of beaches in Dallas, so I, I decided to read things out here. And I know you're familiar with Eugene Peterson, who translated the message. Uh, I wasn't aware that Eugene's son, Eric, was also a pastor. And Eric had a conversation with his dad one time and asked his dad to write him some things while he was beginning his work as, as a pastor. And Eric published this in 2020. It's called Letters to a Young Pastor, Timothy Conversations Between Father and Son. And it's a compilation of about 37 letters that Eugene Peterson wrote to his son, Eric. And I just want to share just one paragraph with you as I, as I transition into Randy because Eugene Peterson was struggling on how to write his memoir on being a pastor. And he writes this to his son, Eric. He says, I am toiling away at the memoir and feeling more confident, but the one thing I want to avoid, if at all possible, is any suggestion that I am any kind of model for an American pastor. I am convinced that the pastoral vocation is the most context-specific vocation there is. The pastor's emotional life, experience in the church, the aptitudes in working this all out in an actual congregation, these people at this time in history and culture, there is no copying. No two pastors are alike, maybe just like no two marriages are alike. The ways in which the vocation of pastor is conceived and develops and comes to birth are unique to each pastor. I don't claim to have any deep wisdom for your specific congregation because it's your specific congregation. However, I hope that you can overhear some things that will be helpful to you in that unique journey that belongs to you. So let me pray, then I'm going to turn it over to my friend and brother, Randy Harris. Faithful God, may you uh, bless this conversation as we lean deeply into the waters that you provide. It's been a hard, hard few months and few years, some of which we have been completely unprepared for. But God, make yourself known and may your spirit pour through us as we think about ways to pastor those that we love. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So I will uh, talk quite briefly. Um, I, I don't watch movies. So, but there is a recent book by a guy who read every Marvel comic all the way through from one to end and then writes this book to describe the Marvel world. So next pandemic, you can, uh, you can read the book. Uh, it's about 450 pages, as I recall. Um, so... Um, you know, asking asking older ministers for ad advice in in preaching or working through a, a pandemic is obviously a waste of time because none of us have done it, and there's nothing vaguely akin 
uh, to it. Um, I also decline every invitation to talk about uh, church next, what church after a pandemic looks like, because I don't have the first idea. And if this wasn't on tape, I would have said, I don't have the first and put in an expletive idea. Uh, I, I have no idea. And the generation of preachers behind me are going to have to uh, figure that out. Um, I do know uh, the greatest book on the pandemic uh, that has been written. And it was written about a half a century before the pandemic. The play by Albert Camus, a near-perfect book, one of the great achievements in the history of literature. Uh, it is the story of what happens when bubonic plague breaks out in a little town in North Africa. And uh, I, won't, I won't take away from you the joy of uh, discovery. You probably know that Camus is an uh, atheist and uh, the primary sort of voices in this book are a priest and uh, a doctor. And it's pretty clear whose side Camus is on. Uh, but uh, the point of the book is uh, the plague reveals. It doesn't so much create things as it reveals what's already there. And if we have been paying attention much has been revealed. Um, Camus' conclusion of the book is now, in my opinion, after uh, half a century, somewhat questionable. And that is, his conclusion is, what we find out in the time of plague is that there is more in human beings to admire than to despise. I'm a little iffy. I'm a little iffy on that, but I appreciate him siding with, uh, with human beings. Uh, my understanding is I'm not so much talking about preaching as I'm talking about the life of the preacher, the minister, people generally uh, in a time of uh, pandemic. And uh, about that, I have nothing new to say, so I'll say old things uh, very quickly. Um, when you are a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail, and so... What I would want to say to everybody is, you better have a contemplative life. And uh, I have unfortunately made the mistake recently of pointing out all of the stunning research that shows having a contemplative life is incredibly good for you. Uh, having a contemplative life is so good for you that in business coaching, with people who don't even believe in God. They teach contemplation. It is so obviously good for your psychological, emotional, intellectual health that everybody is on the contemplation bandwidth. Now, the problem is, when I say that, is what you hear is you ought to engage in contemplation before it's, because it's good for you. And that's not what I want to say. What I want to say is you should engage in contemplation because the living God will meet you there. Not that it will just make you socially and psychologically healthy, 
but that there is a God that is closer to you than your own breath who would like to hang out with you. And that's a different reason altogether. One would think that in a time of COVID, contemplation would be very easy, but it turns out that's not true. Uh, for instance, I learned great lessons about I, my immaturity. I love silence and solitude as long as I get to decide when, where, how. <laughs> Having it forced on me, not so much. And uh, you know, I don't know how much uh, contemplation we did in the Marvel household when all of them were there for 28 days, but I'm guessing not much because some of those, some of those houses get pretty crowded. actually had less alone time during COVID, at least many people did, than they did before. And you have to kind of be um, intentional uh, about that. And I'm, I'm not going to uh, go on the sort of long description about how to do contemplation. There's lots of, there's lots of books that will uh, do that uh, for you. Um, but, you know, I have in the past spent 40 days out in the desert with Hermans. And uh, those Hermans were very leery about giving you spiritual advice. And, you know, I, I came back and tell my students, okay, I. I was out in the desert for 40 days with people who've been out in the desert for, for 40 years and they're very reluctant to speak into my life and you hear the word of God on the way from the lunchroom to the gym. Uh, I have a right to be suspicious. Uh, and I am. And I want to know that when I sit in the pew and go to listen to my preacher that the sermon has been deeply bathed Theologians may ruin the, ruin the world. Preachers may ruin the world. But contemplatives almost never do. People who sit with God um, seldom cause uh, mayhem uh, in the world. And I want to know that the person I'm li listening to is a person of prayer. Okay, second thing, really quick. Uh, to, be, to be spiritually healthy, you're preaching through a pandemic or any other time, uh, the preacher needs to be on a quest. You need to be on a spiritual quest. And that will differ from time to time in your life, but there always needs to be some area that you're leaning into where you're trying to deepen your spiritual life because that's what you're calling your people to do. And um, when, I'm, when I'm listening to my preacher, I want to know uh, that he's not, he's not dead in the water. He's, he's, he's leaning in to something in his spiritual life. Uh, now, I've gotten stuck on my quest, and so it's been the same thing for a few years now. And I chalk it up to the fact that I'm slower than I used to be. I, you know, in my younger days, I'd be done with this and on to the next thing uh, by now. Um, but there was a point where I was sitting in um, Jeff Childers' History of Christian Thought class. I decided to just 
sit in there with the students. I'd read most of that stuff before, but I wanted to, I wanted to read it with young people and see what it was like. And, you know, Jeff's a weird guy, so he also picked some stuff I hadn't read before. Um, in fact, he picked some stuff I'd never heard of. Um, but as we, as we were reading those books, one of the things I was just struck by is all those spiritual masters had a relationship to the passion of Christ that I didn't. Uh, this is most epitomized in St. Francis of Assisi, who at the end of his life, the stigmata of Jesus appear on his uh, hands and feet. And you think, that's ridiculous. I, I will merely point out that that is the best attested miracle outside of the Bible. And maybe it didn't happen, but you know, the history on that one's actually pretty good. And I, you know, I get to thinking, okay, what, what do... What do these men and women know that I don't? Now, I was clear about a couple of things. Number one, I didn't want to understand the passion as deeply as St. Francis did, because I have no interest in stigmata. Um, so I wanted to stop well short of stigmata stage. Uh, but I, I wanted to know what they knew. And that's been the quest. How do I draw closer to the passion so it's not just something in my head, but it's something in my heart? How do I experience it viscerally? Uh, and that's not yours. You, you choose. But you need to be able to name it. Okay, this is, this, is what I'm, this is what I'm trying to do. This is what I'm trying to lean into. That's the way you know you're... Uh, you're still alive right um and the last thing i'll i'll say uh just briefly is the reinforced habits that always go with with preaching and that is uh uh listen to the bible and read it through the lens of jesus christ uh i have quit apologizing for reading the Old Testament as a Christian. You know, am, I, am I supposed to pretend I'm not a Christian while I, while I read this book? Uh, so I do read uh, the word of God through the word, Jesus Christ. That's the way you should read it. Uh, but I do read it. And I've, I've tried to describe uh, unsuccessfully my preaching students that... Uh, this is how you prepare a sermon. Uh, you listen to a text until a sermon says, this is what I want to preach. The sermon will eventually arise from the text if you spend enough time sitting. And, uh, and if, if, it, if it doesn't, just get something off the internet. Uh, <laughs> Um, and that's, that's, that's good advice, not just for preachers, but for everyone. You sit from the Bible for a word of God, or a testimony to the living word, uh, uh, Christ. And there have been times in my life, as I assume there are in yours, when I've been rather bored with the Bible. Uh, like, yeah, 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 yeah. 
Uh, and so here's the discipline I want to suggest. Uh, take some time to read the Bible through in a translation. It makes you, it makes you pay attention. I, a, a year ago, I, sp I spent a year reading the Robert Alter translation of the Hebrew Bible from, uh, from beginning to end with all of the critical notes. I would say to the preachers that if you do not have that, you should go and sell all that you have and buy this book, which costs approximately what it costs to go to Paris. That's not true. Seventy-five dollars, probably. Uh, and as I as I'm reading through this, I'm actually saying to myself, "Have you ever read that story before?" It, I, I don't remember that. God's going to kill Moses over what? If you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to read your Bible more carefully. Um, and. Uh, the, you know, um, the the word became alive and again to experience the uh, uh, presence of the word. So uh, you're you're not going to be shocked. Say, oh, okay, you need to spend some time in contemplation. You need to hang out with the living God. You need to believe in God that God will meet you, and that you need to be on a spiritual quest. You need to be pushing forward in your spiritual life the same way you're asking your people to do that. And that you pay attention to the word of God as it bears witness to the word of God. That's not exactly, that's not exactly rocket science. Uh, but when it comes to spiritual disciplines, uh, new is highly questionable. Uh, so I have the Bible in 2,000 years of Christian history that tells me how to do this. Not, not rocket science. Um, and in a time of pandemic or not, this is what we do. Uh, and I won't, I won't take issue with Camus. I would encourage you to read the book. Uh, but I would just say the pandemic uh, revealed that we needed people. This had people. And you can gloss it over with activity. You know, you can gloss it over a lot of ways. But when things get started to be pared away, you find out, okay, I need to be a person. I, I need to call my people uh, to uh, a deeper place. Uh, and that's true at any point. I'm going to ask uh, Sarah and Amy to introduce themselves um, as they get up. But... I want to reemphasize, uh, if you want to do something for your preacher, buy them Robert Alter's, um, it's three volume, you can find it on Amazon, um, it is incredibly uh, helpful. Somebody uh, gifted that to me, and uh, I, I read it, and I haven't read it cover to cover like uh, my rabbi has, but uh, I'm, maybe I'll get there one day. So uh, Amy, Sarah, who wants to go first? Sarah, you want to go first? All right, so... That's fine. So Sarah's going to come up and just share some things that she learned about preaching in the pandemic. And uh, then we'll hear from Amy and then, uh, yeah, we'll have a conversation about that. Hi, everybody. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Sarah Barton. I'm the university chaplain here at Pepperdine. And about six months before the pandemic, 
um, I had started preaching at the Camarillo Church of Christ on a teaching team. So there are three of us who share preaching duties, Chris Collins, Ron Cox, and myself. And so, um, you know, we had been getting into that rhythm. We had chosen a few, a, a series that we were working through. We had done some studies in the book of Luke. And then um, the pandemic. And the way we did it, it's a smallish congregation, 120, 150 on a really good day. Um, the way we did Zoom was that we were really had our cameras on. You know, now people just kind of come on and you don't really know. Uh, like the way my, my husband knows when he, he, he teaches here and he'll know if people were in class or not is when he closes class and some of those cameras are still just, <laughs> some of those accounts are still just sitting there and no one's responding. And he's like, well, I think they left. I think they left the room. Well, we didn't do that with our church. We kept the cameras on. And so what an experience, and you know, I'm a woman in my 50s, but haven't had a lot of chances to preach. We all know why. And um, here I was with this opportunity to preach. And I was preaching to people in their pajamas and having mimosas. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just guessing kind of, but uh, there was a little confession going on. But we showed up. I'm really, really thankful for our church because people showed up and they turned on their camera, and we saw each other, and we saw into each other's homes and lives, kids running around. Um, we really showed up with each, for each other and with each other to get through this thing. And at first, I'm going to admit, I was like, I'm not preaching any of my real good stuff on Zoom. I'm going to save it <laughs> for the real thing. I'm just going to kind of, you know, do a little devotional. It'll be fine. But that's not what I did. We really, the, the congregation showed up, and we showed up for them with, I think, some of our best preaching. Um, all three of us really put our hearts into it because um, people needed it, and we needed to be together. We needed this time to be a community and so um, we were on Zoom for um, about a year. Then we went back to our uh, church building. It's out in Ventura County um, for, I think it was about nine months, wearing masks. We continued preaching there. And it's just recently that we, um, that with all the county regulations and everything going on, that um, we've preached without a mask on. So here I preach so much on Zoom, then wearing a mask, um, and then now we've, um, we've transitioned to where the preachers and the singers are not wearing masks um, unless, they, unless they want to. So that's kind of the background of the preaching situation that I was in. I was also teaching and preaching here at Pepperdine quite a, quite a bit, um, also some online and some in person. But I decided to reflect a little bit on the content of what... Um, we did, and I decided to call it a tale of two Easter's, because Easter 2020, remember with me back to Easter 2020, we all thought that was the day it was going to be over. We were told we would get to go to church on Easter, 
And so um, we were still at that point keeping distance from our neighbors. We were in intense time. Here we were in an intense time of lockdown. And we were all in our homes. And here we were celebrating Easter. So I looked back at my sermon. And I'm just going to read a little bit of it for you. And um, I looked at this and I thought, really? Did I really preach <laughs> on wandering in the wilderness from Luke 4? Yes, I did. I did not get out of that wilderness. I stayed in the wilderness, and I can't believe I did that on Easter. But I brought it around. I brought it around to the resurrection a little bit. So I want you to hear how I did it. So here's how, what I said. And today, during the coronavirus wilderness we are in, as we finish the 40 days of Lent, I don't know about you, but it does not, not feel like Lent is over this year. We were supposed to celebrate the re resurrection today, and I confess that my flesh and my spirit are weak. The inner spoiled child inside me is taking over because in essence, I have everything I need, a good home and family, a paycheck, plenty of food, enough toilet paper, good health, good work to do, a stable Wi-Fi connection. But I want my life back. I want to feel safe. I want to travel. I don't want to wash my hands every time I touch groceries. I want to see the kids at church in their Easter outfits. I want to go out to eat. I want to get my hair cut. I want, I want, I want. Wendell Berry has a line in one of his poems that says, practice resurrection. And I've already decided that will be my mantra this Easter week. Practicing resurrection by its very nature is not something any of us is good at. It means choosing life in a world that is full of death. Some of us act like we're waiting to die before we will experience resurrection. But Christians declare on Easter Sunday that resurrection is already happening. It is practically available to us right now, no matter what's happening. Though outwardly we waste away, inwardly we are renewed day by day. And so let's find ways to live like dead things can come back to life. We practice resurrection in our marriages, knowing that marriages have the potential to become dead. We forgive, we serve, we humble ourselves. And when marriage partners practice resurrection, marriages live. We can practice resurrection despite the addictions that threaten us. In Alcoholics Anonymous, people learn that when they humble themselves and confess their addictions to one another, a very practical way of life, they learn that new life will come from that confession. When harsh words are spoken in friendship, we can practice resurrection. Friendships can live. And when congregations go through scandal or conflict, we can practice resurrection. Congregations can live. And when economies crash and jobs are lost, we can practice resurrection. Easter reminds us that this material world may not be going how we want it to go. It's a world where all kinds of things like death and viruses and germs are our enemies. And we should fight them with the good common sense God gave us. But we have another way of fighting back too, and that is to practice. 
resurrect. So that's the tale of two Easter's. That's Easter 2020. I don't know about any of you, what you were doing that day, if it brings to mind sermons that you heard or sermons that you preached or what you were experiencing that. Well, fast forward to 2022. So just a couple weeks ago, right? Two or three weeks ago. And I also preached on Easter. And it was a really special day at our congregation because it was the first day that we served communion um, collectively instead of using the little uh, what are we little individual cups and cardboard breads <laughs> and I thought it was really great that we got to do that on Easter it made it feel like Easter in the way Easter really should be and so the people who were serving the communion trays had totally forgotten how to do it it, it went the wrong way several times. Nobody stood where they were wanted to, but, and, and of course we had the option if some people didn't want to do it, but just passing that communion tray from my husband, taking it myself and passing it to our friend Patty sitting with us, I just thought, this is Easter. This, this moment, I can't believe we come to this moment. So that day, I chose to preach from Colossians 2, and I preached about how God has made us alive with Christ. And so this is what I said a couple weeks ago. It says in Colossians 2, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphant over them by the cross. Here's a bit of what I said. Paul and Timothy may not be psychologists, but they have good instincts. Once when, um, sorry, often when troubled couples go to marriage counseling, they're encouraged to remember back to when they first fell in love to remember that sense of wonder they had in each other, the way they sought to know each other, and how they treasured each other. John Barton and I used to argue, I love you more. No, I love you more. No, I love you more. Okay, so a psychologist might tell us, remember how in love you were? We still occasionally, we still occasionally have that little argument. Colossians is like that. It's this glimpse into this sense of wonder of new faith. Paul and Timothy are excited for the people they're writing to, and they want them to remember the treasure of the gospel. Remember how our sins are forgiven, how our indebtedness is taken away, how the powers of this world are defeated. Remember the great reversal, which is Easter. I baptized a college student uh, just the week before uh, before Easter. It was right up here in this amphitheater, and we have a big trough that we bring up there and I baptized a student named Mackenzie. She gave me permission to tell her story. And when we were studying the Bible together and, and um, planning for her baptism, we learned each other's stories and she told me about how she had spent seven years of her childhood very sick. Her family had was given a grim diagnosis and they were told to expect the worst. She didn't even think she would get to graduate from high school, much less go to college, and now she'll be heading off to Switzerland to study abroad in Switzerland next 
year. She didn't think she would get to do any of that, but thankfully, she did experience healing, experience recovery. So her story was already a death-to-life story, and then even more so after her baptism. In our conversations, we talked about the grave of baptism and what it means. The students here at Pepperdine often sing a song called Glorious Day. I don't know if you know this song. It's super loud. It's celebratory. They dance when they sing it. It says, I was buried beneath my shame. Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my tomb till I met you. I was breathing but not alive. All my failures I tried to hide. It was my tomb till I met you. You called my name. Then I ran out of that grave, out of the darkness, into your glorious day. So when Mackenzie hugged me after she was baptized and all the students were dancing and they were clapping, I was reminded, we were reminded, of our great joy in Christ. I think that's what Paul and Timothy want the Colossians and want us to remember. Don't forget the joy of the gospel. Don't let anything take away the joy of the gospel. Jesus invites us into the Easter miracle where the old self and all its practices, the old self and the ways of this human world are left in the tomb, are left in the bottom of the grave of baptism. This was the last line of the sermon. Thanks be to God who makes us alive with Christ and forgives us all our sins. So, a tale of two Easter's. Can you feel the difference <laughs> in 2020? I can't believe, I, I don't know, I preached about the wilderness. I did get to practicing resurrection, but that's all we could do was practice. We couldn't yet feel it. And yet, in 2022, at least we were able to joyfully say Happy Easter together and have communion together. So in between those sermons, um, what our team did, and I really love um, the idea of team preaching. I don't know if any of you have ever considered it in your congregations. I think it's a very healthy um, approach to preaching. We discern together what the congregation needs. It's never only on one person, um, and never more so than during a pandemic. So, so many of the pastors and the preachers who have really, as Pat was alluding to, walk so much of this alone. I know they have leaders and they have others with them, but much of it is alone to, to do this work and to be ready every week. We bore that burden together, Chris and Ron and I. Um, we, we prayed together with Jordan, who is, our, um, who is our family pastor, and we decided together what the congregation needed. It was hard. With all the social concerns going on, the murder of George Floyd, the, um, we had deaths in the congregation, a death due to COVID very early on, and then deaths that just happened because they happened, and then we couldn't have funerals. All of that was going on, um, and we had an election in 2020, which polarized the congregation. All of that was going on, and being together as a team was a very helpful way to approach preaching. So we would get together and decide what do people need to do and we would like one time I think it was Chris said let's preach on death. So all anybody's thinking about and and someone else said 
we just can't do only death. We have to do life in some way. And so we came up with um, a theme where we all chose uh, texts about, um, we called it unafraid. And so it was our way of talking about fear and talking about death, but also talking about being unafraid of all that was going on. So we did a whole series on this theme, unafraid. Um, we did a series on food for the soul because we just thought people just need some sustenance right now. And so we chose texts throughout scripture that, um, have, that focus on food or have food as part of it. Um, that was a really fun one. Uh, we had some really, and you would be surprised how many different uh, food texts there are. Um, I did one on mustard. So even the condiments are even the condiments are there. Um, we did one on good news. Remember when John Krasinski was doing uh, what did he call it? Good news something. He was doing uh, an actor was doing some things that were just like helping people think about good news. We did a series on good news, and then I think my favorite series we did was um, Sunday School Revisited. And so this reminds me of the Robert Robert. This is a Robert Alter commercial today. Um, we, I used my series at that point. We took, this was Chris Collins' idea. We took the stories from scripture that we tell kids and we said, what are we doing telling these stories to kids? <laughs> and so we did Noah, like that is a terrifying story. And Jonah, and we did um, Samson and Delilah. Oh my goodness. Why do we took, why, like uh, Ron Cox brought his little um, miniature Samson from his kids didn't have, uh, I don't know, all of their little superheroes. They had Bible superheroes, so he brought his Bible superhero <laughs> Samson to show to, the, to everybody. Anyway, what we did was we would bring up the kids, and this was the hardest part as the preacher. I did not like this part, but I did it. Um, we would bring the kids up, and we would tell the story in front to the kids in front of the congregation, they would come up to the front, and we would tell them the story, and we would tell it in a way that we felt like this really is how we should be telling the story. Because we often, I don't know, we, don't, we cover over some stuff. or we, So we figured out if we're going to tell this story, what's the best way to tell this story? And we grappled with that together. And then the kids went to kid, children's church, and then we had the sermon for the congregation. So that was probably my favorite series that we did because it, it made you really, like Randy was saying, go back and read a story and think, is that really in there? Is this, is this detail really in there? So um, I'll stop there, and we could talk about it more later, but the tale of two Easter's and, I guess, the series in between. Hi, everyone. My name is Amy Bostenegger. I am... Pepperdine girl, born and raised, but I've spent the last 23, 24 years in New York City as one of the ministers of the Manhattan Church of Christ. Moved there in 1999. My husband thought we'd go to New York for a few years. That'd be fun. Seen the movies about New York. Let's go to New York for a couple years. And we moved back last August <laughs> after living in four different homes. And, uh, having five children and two dogs and a host of friends and a really beautiful life in New York. But one of the parts of that life, one of the big parts, I was a hospital chaplain here, went to Fuller Seminary and was a hospital chaplain 
when I moved to New York, I got a job at Lenox Hill Hospital on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. But we found the Manhattan Church of Christ. And I remember going to lunch with Tom Robinson, who was weirdly about my age at that point and has been a mentor to me ever since. And we sat down at lunch and I said, so Tom, what do you think, what do you think women can do in the church? And he said, I think women can do absolutely anything God calls them to do. And I said, so when you say absolutely anything, what do you mean? And he said, absolutely anything. And I said, you are the first person from the Church of Christ who has ever said those words to me. I went to Fuller Seminary. I'd met lots of other people who had said those words to me, but Tom was the first in the Church of Christ. And at first, it was funny. When I first got to New York, I went into the Manhattan Church of Christ. It felt like a lot of other Churches of Christ I'd been in. And when I got there in 1999, they did not have women doing things. And I was so depressed. I was like, I just moved across the country, and I'm still going to have to become an Episcopalian. Like, I, I thought maybe I would find something else, but here I am. But then within two years, the Manhattan Church of Christ just switched. 2001, they changed, and they said, we are a fully inclusive community, and Garnetta Lovett, who is one of our older matriarchs, one of our matriarchs of the congregation, got up and did our communion meditation, and she said, I have a few things to say. <laughs> she said, I've been waiting a long time, and I have a few things to say. And that was the beginning of it, and it was a lesson for me, though, because as I sat in the pews before that, I felt a hostility. And then I realized that I was surrounded by like-minded people and that this church was moving. And so I became a part of it. And then in 2001, when my first son was born, who, who walked out the door with my youngest daughter a few minutes ago, um, they had an opening on their ministry staff. And so I became a minister at the Manhattan Church of Christ and was there from 2001 to 2022. Yeah. So it was, it was a long journey for me. I started doing children's ministry and then moved more into a family ministry sort of role and had five babies and got a doctor of ministry degree at New York Theological Seminary. So I did a lot of different things along the way. But in 2019, our worship minister, who's a lovely man named Larry Mudd, who some of you may know, um, he and his family took a call from God to go to Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And, and they left, and Larry had been leading worship at the Manhattan Church of Christ since before I got there, so for 20 years. And, um, but I was on the ministry staff, and I had a, there was another guy who had been a Princeton Seminary student, and he, I'd been his, I don't know, mentor or whatever when he was at Princeton, and he was a member of the congregation and was kind of just volunteering, and we went to the elders and said, we want to do worship ministry with Larry gone. I had, Larry was an opera singer. Larry moved to New York to, that is the interesting thing about a church in New York City. He moved to New York to pursue opera and ended up being called into ministry. I was a music minor at Pepperdine, so nothing compared to Larry, but I was like, I think I've got enough music that I can do this. And then my, my, my partner, Kyle, um, is actually a very good musician, not from the Church of Christ, so a really great instrumentalist. And we said, you know, between the two of us, we're already doing ministry. Let us 
let us do worship. So that happened in the early, late, late summer of 2019. So Kyle and I started leading planning and leading worship together. And all along I've been preaching um, a few times a year, not, not a ton, but, but preaching all along the way. And so we were, we were just getting into things. Kyle and I were figuring out how to lead worship, and we were working with the, um, the congregation and trying to discern, was God calling us in a new direction? We were having more and more conversations about how to be um, an authentically diverse community. We were a very diverse community. Like, our photographs were gorgeous because we had people from all over the world all together and we loved each other we loved each other deeply but the truth was and I learned this as I started to get some language and watch what was happening the truth was we were a white church you could say we were a historically white church but that's a culture it's a culture and our members of color were worshiping in our white space. And they were so gracious. And they loved us. And they forgave us over and over and over. And we loved them. And, you know, we pulled them into worship as, as much as we could. But what we needed to learn was how to invite them to truly be themselves in that space and to bring their, their culture and their, their church culture, the church culture that reminded them of their grandmother. Um, so that's what we were working on. We were just trying to figure out how do you, how do, you do it? <laughs> and then, um, then this pandemic hit. And, and this is really the first time I've talked about ministering in the pandemic. Um, and it's just been interesting sitting here as I've prepared for this, thinking like, what is that story? Because I'm just feeling like I'm getting far enough out. I actually ended up um, ending, it, we ended our chapter in New York. Finally, after 22 years, we said it was gonna be three to five, but we moved back to California in, in August of, of 2021, and I stopped working for the Manhattan Church uh, through tears, but it was a, in a mutual love and mutual, like me saying, you go with God, and then saying to me, you go with God, <laughs> um, in February of, of 2022, I, I ended that part of my, my life. So I feel like I'm just getting far enough out that I can reflect a little bit on what that story was. Now, I don't know. Of course, I don't know what it was like anywhere else. I think part of what we were experiencing in New York, lots of people were experiencing. I can only remember how it felt in, in my location. And what's crazy is that location, for when I think back on the first few months of the pandemic, I mean, first four or five or six months of the pandemic, that location was like one spot I really didn't move very much. I was in the den in my house in Mount Vernon, New York, which is in Westchester County, it sits right on top of New York City, and I was on my computer. And that's 
That was my life. The only other thing I did was I would go for walks around the neighborhood and try to make sure my children were on Zoom when they were supposed to be in other parts of the house. We, um, we're a family of seven, and we were all home together, but we had a pretty large home. We were not in an apartment in Manhattan like some of my friends were. Um, and we had, it was spring, and so we could go outside. It was not freezing. So we were, we were in great shape. We had plenty of space. We had room for every person to be on Zoom in a different corner of the house. And of course, we drove each other crazy, but we, were, we weren't on top of each other. Um, and from, from that spot, so like Sarah, I worked with a team. Um, Kyle and I were the ones who were planning worship and um, hosting worship. We, we started out we, we started out on YouTube. We were already on YouTube um, in person. We would put our services on YouTube. So for the first couple months of the pandemic, our services, we continued them on YouTube, and we would put them together. Um, and Kyle and I would plan the service, and we would kind of narrate everything and, and welcome everyone and then do the transitions and try to weave things together. And then one of us would preach. So it was me and Kyle, and then Jason was our youth and family minister and technology guru. And then uh, Carl Garrison um, has done men's ministry and homeless ministry and ministry to people marginalized. And then Tom Robinson was our senior minister. So it was five of us. And we, we met twice a week during the pandemic, well, up until I quit February, on Zoom. And... Um, so we went from trying to do something new in a physical space where the same thing had been done year after year after year after year. And that's very challenging. Can I get an amen? I mean, it's really challenging to like have a group of people where you've done the same thing week after week after week, year after year, and trying to get them to do something new. And that was very frustrating, and I was wringing my hands. And then, <laughs> okay, now the whole world is going to change. And... What was crazy was that all of a sudden we had all of these new challenges that we never imagined, and we also had all these new opportunities because nothing was the same. And so the rules had all changed. The rules of the game had changed. All of a sudden we weren't trying to change the way things have been done because that was gone. And so, yeah, so what I started to say is where I was you probably relate to this. There was so much fear. The fear was palpable. New York City was silent. The city that never sleeps was silent. I actually weirdly didn't go into the city for a year. <laughs> I went into the city multiple times a week. My sons went to school two blocks from the church. I went into church multiple times. Everything came to a screeching halt, and I literally didn't go into Manhattan for a year, which I still can't even believe, because everything stopped except for the doctors and the nurses and the people who were working for the MTA, our bus drivers and subway drivers, all who were members of our congregation. And so when I think about those early days, it's, 
it was this very weird, weird mix where everything was silent and people were home, like hunkered down, except for those who were on the front line, who were scared for their safety and, and traumatized, literally traumatized. And those who were sick. And so I think that's the experience that may be a little bit unique being in New York is we had people who were sick very quickly. A number of people in the congregation were sick. Our people of color were sicker. It was obvious that there was something systemic going on. I did my doctorate at New York Theological Seminary, which is um, pr a primarily African-American seminary. And I was helping, I was a TA for a number of classes there. When I would get on Zoom with my NYTS classes, their family members were sick and dying. When I would go to church with our multiracial congregation, there was not as much death. That's just what was happening. It was, it was like, I wasn't reading that in the news. A sociologist didn't have to tell me that. That's what was happening right in front of me. Um, one of my NYTS students, who's a white chaplain, and pretty young, pretty new to chaplaincy, told a story about those first few months. And if I remember correctly, I may be confused, but I think she said it was Palm Sunday. And she'd been working as a chaplain at Mount Sinai, which is one of the main medical centers in New York City. And she decided to go to church on Zoom. Like, again, I think it was Palm Sunday, but I may be getting that confused. And she said that she was just like, I'm going to go to church and maybe I'll find something that will give me some hope. And one of the lectionary texts for that day had, was something about, um, it was Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. And I guess she tuned into a few different Zoom or YouTube services, and she said everyone she went to, the sermon was about people staying home and making bread and talking about Jesus being the bread of life and how we're all home making bread. She was not home making bread. She was venturing out into this silent city and... And, and into these very, very dangerous spaces and trying to be a chaplain. And it was so stark to her how far her experience was from church at that moment. And I think that's what we were navigating, you know, that's what we were navigating, trying to figure out where is, where is everyone right now and how... How can, we, how can we serve this congregation where people are in very, very different places? But what we had in common is we were all afraid. We were all extremely disoriented, so disoriented. We just had no idea. We did not know the future. In one of the first sermons that I preached that still really stays with me, I talked about after, um, after the resurrection, Jesus said to his followers, go to, go to Jerusalem and wait until I send the one that I've promised to you. And I was so struck by this idea that Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and wait. And I preached that during the first two months of the pandemic when we were all 
in New York City, no one was going anywhere. And I'm like, we can relate to that. We can relate to that very early group of followers who were up in the room, upper room, 120. The scripture tells us about 120 of them. And they were just waiting. And they didn't know what for, and they didn't know the future. And that's how it, how it felt. One of the things Kyle pointed out, um, Kyle was a wonderful conversation partner through the whole thing. And um, he noticed, as time went on, we started hearing conversations about masks and all of that, how um, just, this, just this feeling that being told to wear a mask is un-American. We, we, we are you know, the home of the, the land of the free, the home of the brave. We're, we're, we, we believe in independence. He said to me once, he was like, Amy, you know, it is un-American because we believe in independence. We believe in strength. And this thing has reminded us that we are, we are not that strong and we're not that independent. And we have to, we're being called to lay down our lives so this sense of vulnerability, that was something we were noticing and wrestling with. And all of these things were challenges and opportunities. And I think that's what I, that's what I saw over and over and over, these challenges and opportunities. About six weeks into the pandemic, we lost Reggie Jackson, African-American man, deacon of our congregation. His wife, Pat, um, in 1973, was shot in the head in a robbery in a grocery store in New York City. And she was blind because of that. And Reggie would bring her to church. He took care of her. She's the strongest woman I have ever met. And Reggie got COVID and died before we even knew what was going on. Like, we barely even knew that we weren't going to even meet in person. And I remember Tom said in passing, by the way, Reggie's in the hospital. And we were all like, wait, what? Reggie's in the hospital? And 10 days later, he was dead. And so we had to figure out how to, what to do. So we had a we gathered early in the morning, the day they were going to pick up his ashes. We gathered, not even on Zoom. We weren't even on Zoom yet. We, we put, put out an audio prayer and asked everyone to listen to it at the same time. And we opened up a bulletin board on our, on our website where people could comment and tell Pat and the boys, that we were with them. So that's the kind of thing that, like, we were led to creativity, right? And we were led to um, trying to recognize what is it that we mean to each other? What is it that we need? 
And how can we do it? When we can't use, I always tell my kids, like, pretend like you're on the amazing race. It's like, do all of that, but don't use any of the things you've used in the past. Go. <laughs> See if you can do it. You know, like, you can't leave your home. But here are some tools. How can you do it? And I just feel like that's what we did week after week, month after month. Ministering in an atmosphere of fear, uncertainty, grief, not only those of our church members, but also our own. The problem and the opportunity of needing to do everything, everything differently. That actually, we switched to Zoom a couple months in, and there became this opportunity on Zoom to worship in a totally different way. Like our congregation, like I said, we were a white church. Only our, only our members of color amened out loud. <laughs> so we're pretty quiet. But on Zoom, we were like amening in the chat. And people were repeating sentences in the chat. And we were like interacting in a different way. So there was an opportunity. And there's a closeness. When we look back at those months, there was a closeness that we found. We also had members who didn't get the technology. And they were absent. They were invisible. Pat Jackson, who I just mentioned, was blind, was never on Zoom. Every once in a while, her son Gregory would, would be with her, and they'd put on, uh, in, the, in the YouTube chat, Pat and I, my mom and I are here, but so, it was so rare that we saw them. So while we had this, but, but yet there was also this sense among those who showed up on Zoom, so much relief, like, oh my goodness, we're here. You're here. We see each other. We're all here. <laughs> Even though we're not together like we're supposed to be, but we're all here. The challenge and the opportunity over and over and over and how to navigate that. And then the other thing is, there was this profound sense that the, that the experience was very different for different people. Um, and part of that had to do with privilege. Like I said, I was in a big house with a big yard and lots of space. And I had church members who were in one-bedroom apartments, studio apartments, and didn't even want to go out into their hallway because they were afraid they'd get COVID. My, I was having my groceries delivered. Actually, my husband usually went to the grocery store because he was going a little stir-crazy. So he would go to the grocery store. I, I never did. People who didn't afford to get their groceries delivered and didn't want to even walk out into the hall. Like, very, very different experiences. So going into that church space without making assumptions that would be painful, right? That would cause people to feel invisible or it would be alienating, really recognizing how we were in such different places. And we were in different places on different days because there were days where I was feeling really optimistic and there were days when I was feeling really depleted. And in any gathering, we had all of that, right? We had people who'd had a good week and people who'd had a horrible week and people who were scared and people who were feeling pretty good. And that's actually how every church service is. But it we don't always remember that. And that, to me, became so clear that it's so important, whether you're preaching 
or leading worship or any sort of ministry recognizing the trauma that's in the pew people are carrying being so aware of that um those are the main things I wanted to share. I do have one thing I want to read to you that is really good. Um, this was a number of months into the pandemic, and I actually read this when I was um, at the initiative in November, and I love it so much. I'm going to read it again. <laughs> so number of months into the pandemic, Kyle and I had been planning worship, and someone very kindly said, if you guys need anything, let us know. And Kyle, Kyle sent this email, well, sent this email in response, and, and it, was love, it was in love. Was not being, he was not being mean, but this is what he said. I really appreciate you offering to do whatever we might feel like we need. So if you could just put together an order of worship, put it in the Dropbox folder by tonight, and just reach out to some folks and ask them to consider presenting live or recording all of the elements of the service. Also, if you could consider the topic of the sermon and maybe think about some things that might be important to us culturally and atmospherically as a church, especially in relationship to our ongoing journey toward inclusion and justice and other important topics, just try to weave that in theologically and creatively throughout other selections and other moments in the service. And I think... I may not be there that day, so if you could go ahead and just do the music and maybe write a communion meditation and find a way to make it all, I don't know, really relevant and fresh, but at the same time honoring the roots of tradition and the fact that the gospel is never pop bubble gum, it's always something deeper. So yeah, if you could do that, that would be great. That's all we need. And then do it again next week and the week after that. Before the two of you all uh, come back up, I um, just want to offer a, a few of my uh, my own thoughts on uh, you know what we've learned in the pandemic, and I so appreciate what uh, Sarah and Amy have shared. Of course, what Randy have shared. One of the things I'm mindful of are the stories that we're going to tell our children and grandchildren um, about our experience in the pandemic, and I just want to probably say some things that you already are thinking, but I just want to articulate it, and maybe you can agree with me. Um, as far as my church and my context, one of the things that the pandemic did is that it made the things that were already hard a lot harder. In other words, if your marriage was already bad before the pandemic, it made it even worse once the pandemic hit. If you are already struggling with, you know, the demons of anxiety and depression, the pandemic just made those even worse. And one of the things in Dallas that happened during the pandemic was that uh, Emmett Smith divorced his wife about six months into the pandemic. And, you know, and I say that with, without knowing Emmett Smith and their story, but it was fairly interesting how the people in Dallas reacted to that relationship and that marriage ending because people assumed that they were a really happy couple, happily married. But once they were put in a home together and isolated together, things just kind of blew up. Emmett Smith is a uh, uh, the running back for the Dallas Cowboys uh, for several years. 
And, and I, yeah, thank you. You're, you're welcome. And so she's like, who's Emmett Smith? Um, my, my apologies. Um, but it reminded me of how many Emmett Smiths were in my church who I assumed were doing okay. But then when, when COVID hit, it just really exposed everything that was already hard. Uh, secondly, and this is something I've talked with a lot of my preaching friends about, the pandemic it really accelerated the culture of consumerism, didn't it? I never will forget showing up uh, on, a, on a Sunday soon after we decided to gather back together again, and I had uh, a sweet congregant come up and say, I'm so excited to listen to you because uh, I've just got through listening to two other megachurch preachers in Dallas, and now I get to hear you, and it just makes my Sunday so meaningful. And one of the names that I, that I will not mention um, was at a fairly large church in downtown Dallas that, you know, might have the first or Baptist in its name. But anyway, um, my, my heart just sunk because those are two radically different gospels they were consuming. And one thing that they did in my church is it forced people's hand to make a decision about something that they didn't like to begin with. And so when we began to assemble, it's not that those people were going to come back, it's that they weren't going to come back at all. And I even had a, a family that we were fairly close to that said to us, if it weren't for the pandemic, we would probably still be at your church. But the pandemic gave us space to really think through some things that we probably wouldn't have otherwise because, listen to this, because I'm not sure we would have had the energy to go to another church if not for the pandemic. And I just thought that was so odd. It's something I never expected. In my naive self, I expected everybody at my church to come back and miss me so much. And that just didn't happen. Uh, another few things the pandemic did in a, um, in a positive way is in so many contexts, it dismantled systems that the building had protected for several years. My little bitty old church back in uh, Middle Tennessee, they started having Zoom communions where entire families were participating. And what they didn't realize is that they were embracing full participation of men and women in a worship service without thinking it was actually a worship service. <laughs> It didn't count, right, because it was on Zoom. But what that did is that enabled them to have future conversations post-COVID about why that couldn't continue. That was a beautiful thing that the pandemic uh, was able to do. Another thing that was unexpected that the pandemic did, at least in our church context, is it brought families together to worship together that had been previously isolated. Um, I never will forget a conversation with, with Mark at my church who came up to me at Easter this year and apologized for not being back because his family had developed a rhythm of getting up and eating breakfast every Sunday morning and then watching online worship together, and he didn't want that to stop just because we were gathering in person again. And half of his family did not want to come to church before the pandemic, and now they were actually experiencing church together as a family. And as much as I wanted to say, why don't you come back and join us in person? 
I just couldn't bring myself to disrupt something beautiful that came from the pandemic. Um, a couple other things that were really hard, and this has already been mentioned, that the division and the political alliances were really ramped up during the pandemic. At my church, we grant sabbaticals to our ministry staff every five years. And my sabbatical was supposed to happen in June of 2019, which is two or three months after the pandemic just landed. And my shepherds really encouraged me in their wisdom to go ahead and be gone for the full 30 days in June. And when I got back in July, our ministry staff and our eldership were mad, tired, and they all wanted to quit. Because while I was gone, George Floyd happened. And there were all kinds of things simmering that I had detached myself from on purpose. And I had no idea how tired and fatigued we already were and now will continue to be. Um, that the pandemic just kind of was like gasoline to that fire that was already burning. Um, I wasn't prepared for the depression that many of our people felt during the pandemic, especially our students and our teenagers and those in college. I'm going to ask Sarah to maybe speak to this more uh, in a moment because of her experience with college students here, but even in my own family, my, I've got four sons, um, one that's about to be 21 and another one that just turned 18 and I watched them very painfully um, try to manage the, uh, the lack of connection that they experienced because of the pandemic. Especially my oldest, who was a student at Lipscomb University, who is no longer a student at Lipscomb University. Because if you're an Enneagram person, he is a seven with a seven wing and it just about drove him into the ground to just do online class after online class after online class. And he finally came back to his mother and I and said, I cannot keep wasting any more of your money. I need to figure things out. And I don't think that would have happened if not for the pandemic. So we've learned a lot of things about each other and a lot of things about our churches. Um, and as people that stand before the people of God week in and week out, it's still our responsibility to tell stories of Easter and to continue to embody Wendell Berry's invitation to practice resurrection that Eugene Peterson, by the way, wrote a book about. Um, it's, it's still our job to think about what diversity looks like Amy, you, wrought, you, you said to be authentically diverse, learning how to be yourself in this space. Um, those are just a few of my thoughts and reflections. I'm going to invite Amy and, and Sarah back up, and for about 15, 20 minutes, let's have a conversation. We don't have any chairs, so I don't want to sit up here on this thing. Up. No, you can just stand. You guys are so easy. Thank you. Um, those are. Nick, these other mics work? Nick is either gone or asleep. Okay. Um, anyway. Can you hear me? They're working. No. Yeah. So, 
so, so I guess I started with some of my reflections on what I learned about my church. But let me just start with you, Sarah, as you worked specifically with students. Um, what did you learn about how they responded um, in the pandemic that would be helpful for us as, as people who have churches full of students and parents full of students? Yeah. What are some of the things that you kind of witnessed and learned through this? Um, I mean, I think we all know it's well established that mental health um, challenges have been on the rise for years. And then during the pandemic um, rose even more. This is for all ages of people, but we see it especially with um, emerging adults, 18 to 22 year olds specifically. And so I guess, you know, I'm, I want to be uh, kind of optimistic about it because yes. of the students that I know and we could be, you know, we can, um, we can kind of be really, really sad, but I do think students are taking responsibility for their mental health. They're taking responsibility for their health. Mm. They, we have a program here where students can choose how they spend what would be at other universities, sort of like uh, chapel credit, but we have breakout groups that they can go to. And the first breakout groups they chose were hiking, um, hiking in faith, we have a sacred yoga uh, experience. I mean, you can get your chapel credit doing yoga on alumni field with scriptures from the gospels being read over you while you do yoga. We had um, Jeff Walling does the hardest class of all, which you can all appreciate if you know Jeff Walling. He does um, the class. He does the breakout group for students who didn't sign up and pick something else and he does it on joy and he takes 400 students in Elkins Auditorium and leads them on an experience of joy and our assessment is really good so I think when students choose health they will choose healthy um, ways of, of uh, approaching these things that are going on when they're offered when a mentor is there they choose spiritual mentoring um, and so my advice is just um, you know engage with young people if you know this is what they're experiencing they know what's going on they're willing to take responsibility they're willing to do the work and they appreciate having mentors they want to talk about joy they want to talk about um, happiness practices was a very uh, popular uh, class they want to talk about who Jesus is and talk about following Jesus they're not shying away. Students are not shying away from that. And so to me, that's positive. They're very mature in their understanding of who they are. When I was that age, if I was going through those kinds of things, I wouldn't have known what to do. Yeah. So yeah, the, they, they know this is happening. They know it's happening to their peers, but I think they're very, our students have been very responsible in showing up in their own lives. Yeah. What would you add to that, Amy? Having emerging adults in, in your home. Well, what I would add is we as adults and leaders need to do our own work. Yes. We need to be emotionally healthy um, because they, they're expecting that of us. And it is a crisis, you know, and, and we can't lead the way we need to lead if we are emotionally unhealthy. Um, and I think our churches, I don't think that, 
the generation, I mean, my, my kids are, I don't even know what generation, my daughter, my 13-year-old th daughter tells me all the time, she's like, oh my gosh, you're so Gen X. And I'm like, Gen X is the best. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, and what are you? But um, they, they need us to be relevant. They mm. need us to be in the conversations, the hard conversations that they are in. They need to be reminded, and they, they need to live into a reality that the church is not often left field doing something different, but is really aware and engaged in the hard things that are truly going on. Yeah. You know, they need, they need to be able to find a church that they can walk into and, 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 and be with people who are also wrestling with these very difficult things. So bringing this back almost full circle to the task of preaching, what are some framing stories that maybe emerged during COVID that would give language to your church to help them sort through all of these things, whether it be mental health or trying to be uh, emotionally healthy. I'm trying to think of what, what are some of the, uh, the framing stories. And I appreciate, of course, both of you talking about different sermons. You know, I loved what Sarah said about here I was on Easter preaching about the wilderness. Um, what are the framing stories come to mind? You have one that you're thinking I mean, of, I've Amy? I've been just like in the early church, partly because I've wanted to read William James Jennings' commentary on Acts. And so that's, that's where I've been. But I don't know, I've really resonated with looking at those very early stories and the Spirit of God coming upon this community and empowering them and recognizing that we are that community. Mm. Uh, that's, that's like where my brain has been for three years, two, two years, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I would say something very, I, I love that commentary as well and used that at church and here on campus. But God does new things. God always is doing new things. And the Holy Spirit is always guiding people out to, to be on mission. And I, I think the church get, can get behind that, can get excited about that. It's when we retreat and we try to maintain the status quo that, we're missing out on what's exciting and so I think framing stories of the book of Acts we love the book of Acts or just the whole story of the Bible in which God is seeking to redeem um, redeem creation Stu you know I think that the church and if we're talking about my students students will get on board with joining what God is doing yeah so. um, there's a homiletics professor at Duke named uh, Richard Lisher and Richard Lisher did uh, almost all of his PhD work in studying uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermons. And part of what Lisher uncovered, of course, Lisher is a Caucasian, you know, white male, is he uncovered all of the ways the African American churches were talking back to King the entire time he was preaching. Mm, and Lisher uh, finally worked up the courage to ask, I've never asked this, but I'm curious, what? What's the deal with all the callback? And the African-American that he was interviewed, uh, you know, obviously it was, a, it was a friend of his said, Dr. Lisher, we don't amen because the preacher says something novel or new. We amen because the preacher is 
telling us something that we already know. He's reminding us of things that we've already heard. And I guess for me, (laughs) I guess for me, that's what stared me in the face is that people that I was preaching to didn't need anything novel or new. They needed to be reminded of what they already knew. And they needed words of hope. And they needed just, you know, uh, I forget which one of you talked about the, it was a Sarah talked about the Sunday school lessons. Um, to be reminded that, oh yeah, that, that story is in the Bible and it actually matters to us now. Um, let's reflect a minute on uh, what Randy shared as far as being contemplative. And maybe share some of your own journeys, frustrations with the contemplative life. Because I know the three of us have been listening to uh, Randy for quite some time. You know, beat that beat that drum. And I'm wondering what role contemplation or the contemplative life played in your house. Evidently, it didn't play much of a role in my house because all I did was watch Marvel movies. So uh, just curious as to what you all have experienced and what you've learned with the contemplative life, particularly as it relates to being a voice in the church. Uh, You know, just ever since we started, I've just been thinking about the people who came to this class and why you're here and what you came thinking or looking for. And, um, you know, we've reflected in a, a variety of ways on the past few years and you can you can even hear within the four of us who have said something we're all still making sense of what has happened Mm -hmm. we're all still working through working through that but I do think what Randy has offered us is um, simple it's the truth it's what we have to all do and I would have I said it out loud at the beginning of the pandemic this is going to be great two weeks at home I'm gonna I'm gonna do yoga every morning I'm gonna have my quiet time I'm gonna pray I'm gonna do all those things that I know I should do and nothing you know I can keep my schedule the way that I want I'm going to do it but I think I mean my reflection just is our our you know uh, our flesh is weak we mm. know that's what we need to do we know the fruit of contemplation, of meditation, of prayer, of being in God's presence, of of sitting and just listening to God. We know it, but we didn't do it. Many of us did not use this. And, and, you know, there were a lot of things going on. I have grace for myself that I was also asked to figure out a whole lot of things I had never been asked to figure out before, and it was challenging. But I do think you just have to find that you have to be disciplined. It, it is a discipline. You have to mm. find that time. You have to ask, you have to do it in community, not individually and alone. And I don't know. I think it's one of the best things we've at least reflected on today is that without that life of prayer and contemplation, after the first couple of weeks, I saw that I wasn't spending that time in God's presence because of all the crazy going on and I was able to I was able to make those commitments just like I do all the time yeah so Amy how about you this is a tricky question for me um I've got this rebellious streak in me and I, I decided a while ago that I was done with all of the things with all the shoulds 
like I was just done because I was just tired of all the things that I should be doing that I wasn't doing. And I'm just like, I'm old enough, I'm done. Like I'm, not, I'm done with all of those things that I should be doing because the list is way too long and I don't have time. And I have five kids. I've had a, a young child in my home since the turn of the millennium. And um, actually now she's seven, so I'm almost like out of that. As a matter of fact, my daughter, my 13-year-old, who is just sees, pierces my soul, she's like, Mom, you can't even tell people that you have five kids anymore because two of them are in college. So. <laughs> doesn't even count. And I'm like, I still take care of those boys in college. I'm like, you don't know. Anyways, so I got really weary of being told that I needed to pray more or feeling really guilty for not praying. And, you know, I totally grew up believing I needed to have a daily quiet time. And if I was going to call myself a real Christian, I should get up and pray, read the Bible early in the morning. So obviously I wasn't a real Christian and I went into ministry anyways. And um, so that's the rebellious side of me that's like, don't tell me what I need to do. God will tell me what I need to do. And you don't know what it's like. You're not in ministry. You don't have five kids. Have you ever tried to feed this many people this often? Like, um, but what I've come to realize is that, you know, I believe in a God who um, talks about mustard seeds, right? And I've also come to see that I desperately need quiet. Desperately. Not because anyone's telling me that I need quiet, not because, anyone, not because God is saying you better pray or else I don't know you, but I need it. And sometimes it's just 60 seconds. Sometimes it's just sitting in my car before I get out instead of rushing from one thing to the next, which is so easy to do, but taking a breath and saying, okay, here I am. I'm here in this place, and God is with me, saying to God, I know you're with me. Tell me what I need to hear. And it can be tiny, and it can be short, I've done a lot of, my, my pandemic hobby was a yoga teacher training program that I'm now in my second, doing my second program. And so they, Randy, are all about contemplation. On the yoga side of things, they're saying the same things from a different tradition. And in my mind, I'm Christianizing everything that they're saying. And they're like, you need to do it. It's so important. There's, you know, you're, you're suffering if you don't find this contemplation. And they are, talk about the breath. And I think about God breathing into the first human beings. And I think about the spirit of God breathing life into all of us. And so as they talk about the prana, I'm imaging the spirit of God. And that God, the scripture says, as close as my own breath. And so if I can sit, even if it is just for a few minutes, even if it is just for a minute and breathe and slow my breathing down and notice it and ask like God what do you want me to hear I think that that openness for me will take me a lot farther than sitting down with my Bible and a notebook and an hour of 
which, which I love, if I can find an hour with my Bible and a notebook and kind of praying in and out, that's great, but that's so hard to find. Mm. But I can find these, these micro moments throughout the day, and they're so life-giving to me. Yeah, I love that, and I really appreciate your vulnerability. Um, I mean, nobody else in here knows how you feel, so, uh, and, and I say that tongue-in-cheek because yeah. nobody knows? in here knows how you yeah. feel. And it's hard as, as a preacher and as a trusted voice week in and week out to be given the responsibility of helping people understand what they maybe should do, or at least that's the way it's interpreted. Um, Randy, I don't, I don't want to throw you too much of a curveball, but I think you're going to be okay talking about this. Um, when I got the news that Thich Nhat Hanh had died, I immediately thought of, of you because I'd never heard of Thich Nhat Hanh until I you know, Randy started talking about this, this monk that Randy kind of adores. And I'm like, who is this person? I started reading some of his books. And I'm like, okay, Thich Nhat Hanh is actually worth reading. Can, can you, do you mind coming up and just sharing just briefly what you learned? Yeah. And Thich Nhat Hanh is uh, T-I-C-H, Thich Nhat yeah, N-Y-E-T, Han, H-A-N-H, I believe, um, who recently died. But there's a lot of these spiritualists that quote a lot of Thich Nhat Hanh. <laughs> and uh, Randy. Ah, uh, Suzanne Stabil, okay. But just reflect a little bit about Thich Nhat Hanh there, Randy. Yeah, so, so thanks for putting on tape that I adore this Buddhist, um, Zen, Zen Buddhist monk. Are you denying that? No, I'm not. <laughs> Believe it or not, I, I went to a retreat that Thich Nhat Hanh did with a thousand Buddhists in Mississippi. Let that work on you for, uh, you know, you didn't know there were that many Buddhists in Mississippi. And um, he, he's an expatriate uh, Vietnamese. He, he would protest the war. He basically left, and they wouldn't let him back in the country. So he's, he lived most of his life in France. And uh, it, I, you know, I've, I've been with a lot of hermits and monks. I, I was thinking while Amy was uh, talking, you know, one, of the, one of the things the, the hermit said to me early on was, don't pray the way you think you should. Pray the way you can, and God will meet you there. That when all these shoulds and coulds come in there, it, it it, it strangles prayer, and that was, that was very liberating. But when, when I went to this route with Thich Nhat Hanh, when he walked into the room, peace came. And all I wanted to do was see how close to him I could get. The, you know, it's just hard to explain what he, what, what he throws off. And it, it's interesting that... Um, Thich Nhat Hanh's kind of mark in Zen Buddhism is he was a little less about sitting and a little more about the meditation of everyday life, you know, just kind of walking through this life with this peaceful, and you have to sit some to get there, but, you know, he wasn't one of those, let's sit for six hours, Buddhist. He was one of those, let's experience peace while we're washing the dishes and attending to the children and that sort of thing. 
But Thich Nhat Hanh has talked to Christians so much that he talks very good Christian. And uh, when I was there, you know, he said, uh, the kingdom of God is in your midst, quoting scripture. Why are you in such a hurry to get to the next thing? Because everything you've ever needed or wanted spiritually is right with you right now. And when you get to the next thing, it'll be with you there, too. So, ah, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slow down here. He's great on emotions. He says, what you should do with your emotions is not pretend you don't have them, but talk to them. Which is great advice. Okay, anger, I see you here. What are you doing here? Okay. Uh, sadness. I, what, what, what are you doing here? Um, so, again, it's one of those places where uh, Christian mystics and Buddhist mysticism, they're, they're quite different, but there, there is a, a place of meeting, and I take that on pieces every step, or is it every step is peace? I can never remember which way it is. Either way, great book. Uh, Thanks, Randy. Um, we're going to take about, you know, five or ten more minutes here. Um, questions, comments, before I kind of bring things to a landing. Thank you for coming. I really appreciate It's really hard to do a session right after lunch. Um, and I don't know what you ate, but uh, what I ate was delightful and what you couldn't eat in Dallas. So I am so grateful that, that you decided to come instead of falling asleep somewhere. Um, anything at all? Question, comment, cry of anguish? Um, I want to encourage you to find a comfortable place um, in your pew um, with both feet on the ground, if you don't mind. Um, if you're able, turn your palms up, close your eyes, and I'm just going to ask you to take a deep breath in through your nose and exhale through your mouth. And we're just going to sit in some silence for a few moments.
faithful and loving God, may we look back on the ways you were present during the pandemic. And may we recognize that you were there all along. Just as you promised you'd always would be. You were and you are. Thank you for reminding us this day that Easter hope is ever before us. Thank you for the good stories and wisdom that we've heard. For my partners in the gospel, Randy and Sarah and Amy. May you be with those in this chapel congregations they represent as they go back as ministers as elders as members may they be reminded that they are advocates for you and your peace your justice and your mercy in the world thank you for the story of Jesus that sustains us Holy Spirit thank you for being in us equipping us to do that which we could never do on our own. And loving God, thank you for being the parent that we need. For you embody characteristics of both a loving mother, courageous father, a wise grandparent. Thank you for being all those things to us. May you continue to work out your way in the world by using broken people like us. We thank you for this time that we've shared together, for it's in your name that we pray. Amen. We're going to end early, if that's okay. And I look forward to seeing you all later. Thank you for being here.